And one of the big questions is, what is money? And there's a lot of answers to that. The answer that I prefer is it is a representation of value with which you can buy things that other people have that you want. Yeah. And which, you, which of course, you will then accept from other people to give them things that you have that they want. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Hell, spill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and... Jeff McClure. And uh, we are, now that we've said our, our names, we always have this little blank. What, what are we supposed to do again? Now, what are we supposed to do now? We, we're supposed to do some kind of a program here on the economy. This is the personal wealth coach. And hopefully today we'll be enlightening you with things about finance or maybe more likely befuddling you with the complexity of the world that we live in. Uh, hopefully can we can enlighten more than befuddle, but often what we wind up with is befuddle lightenment there. So beflight it's beflightenment. Beflightenment. Um right. so before we get started though, we have to disclose some things. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Why are we telling you that? Because we fall under some different regulations. Uh, it's registered with the SEC as an investment advisory firm. That means fiduciary advice given and so on. We don't give fiduciary advice on the air. We can't. It's not private. We don't know all of you. Uh, we can't custom tailor our advice to you. Even if you're sending us an email, it wouldn't be private for us to answer it on the air. So we give educational information while we're on here. And I think that's pretty important to know. Um, just because the SEC is who the firm registers with to be a fiduciary doesn't mean that the SEC likes us or dislikes us. It doesn't imply that the SEC has any feelings at all. In fact, I don't think they have feelings. I think they're pretty unfeeling out there. They are a government agency. It's, it's, if it's not in triplicate, it doesn't exist. I think they feel untrusting. Yes. And that's their role. I mean, they're supposed to be untrusting. So right. we got we to say that, and it's important for you to understand. And now, you're, would, would you deem to tell us the next uh, The information that we use in this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Or, or especially unsaid information. The uh -huh. Accuracy and completeness of unsaid information is strictly a not guaranteed. I will guarantee that unsaid information has not been said. Oh, wow. I see what you did there. It is not complete. Right. Hmm. I will guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid information. But what about if we type it? On the radio? Yeah, it's a very, very new new media. It's uh, This is going to be uh, Web 4.0. Oh, I yeah. thought it was... It's called... Web, the, it's Web actually X. moving backwards. It's it's the telegraph. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, or teletype. Yeah, so, so we could do it. Um, we also don't pay for this time on the station. We are also not paid for the time. This is not a paid commercial program. Uh, the firm advertises about the radio program, but that's it. Uh, the studio also 
advertises about the radio program. There is no quid pro quo senator. In fact, I think if we said we were going to stop doing the radio program, um, I don't know that it would go over so well at the studio. I think they would not like that um, for Mm. some reason. I might be wrong. I mean, I haven't talked to them about it in a long time. So uh, I think they like us still. All right. So we have some questions. Right. The first one is, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Uh, it, it is not. That would be a wonderful question to receive, but we may have to think about it for quite a long time. We might have to yeah. outsource this to a planet and maybe some white mice. We'll see. Right. Um, however, his questions are nearly on the level of that significance. Um, his first question is a question that we really appreciate. So, Inquisitor John... The most faithful of our inquisitors, the guy who's asked us probably more questions on the air than any other listener combined throughout the years that we've been doing this. We appreciate you, John. Um, He's, as is tradition, taken a picture of the Wall Street Journal in its paper form and emailed it to us digitally so that we may compare the digital versus the converted analog to digital to see which is more accurate. He's got a question, and in ink... Uh, He has circled parts of an article. The article is about the money supply. It's about money in general. His question is, uh, his statement is, creating money, when did this system start and is it unique to the U.S.? So the area he's got circled, this is an opinion piece, but this portion of it is based in good fact. So we will say that first. Um, When a bank makes a loan, it credits the borrower's deposit account. The loan does not come from the bank uh, drawing down on its reserves at the Fed. Banks can also create money by... Okay, so let me explain that because that's... Man, that's dry. Let's give an example. Um, You have $10,000 and you deposit it at the bank. What's the bank going to do with that money? It's on the... I mean, they're supposed to hold it for you, right? And make sure that it's there when you come back. But they don't make any money doing that. And they actually do like to be profitable. So they loan some percentage of that out. It's coming from your deposit, and the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve Act are set to tell the bank what percentage of their deposits they're allowed to loan out. Because we don't want you to be showing up for your money and them not to have it because they loaned it all out. There's a great scene in It's a Wonderful Life, every Christmas classic, where Jimmy Stewart is standing on the countertop at the savings and loan telling people that the money's not there, which you would think would be a bad speech to give to the depositors. <laughs> but he says, it's not here. It's in, it's in so-and-so's house and it's in so-and-so's house. So he gave mortgages out with that money. Uh, this, this is a key piece of information. What does it have to do with creating money? Well, if you put $10,000 in the bank and the bank loans out some portion of that, Let's say they make $10 off the interest. That would be ludicrous these days, but this is a, we're trying to keep this even and easy. They made $10 off of loaning that money out. Now, you, your deposit is there and you show up and you get your money out. They've pulled out 10, you pulled out your $10,000. The bank still has $10. Where did it come from? And I know that's a mass and grossly oversimplified, but in essence, a big chunk of that $10 is money that didn't exist before. It wasn't in paper form, it's an electronic form. And 
let's just say, for instance, you make the loan, you take the loan from the bank, you give them $10,000 and then you get a loan of $2,000 and you pay them $10 uh, and then you pay off the loan and you withdraw your $10,000. Where did that extra $10 come from? Well, you may have done something with the loan to create some value. It may have allowed you to buy a car so you could go to work. Um, therefore, you've created value in the economy, and that is represented by the interest payment. That's new money. Now, it's not 100% new money. The reverse is also true, and we saw this very directly in the Great Recession, the global financial crisis. When money is loaned out and then not repaid, it causes money to disappear, just like paying money back with interest causes money to appear. When loans are not repaid, though, the amount of money that's created is a lot, lot more than the amount of, or, or destroyed, I'm sorry, the amount of money that's destroyed when it's not paid back could be a massive portion of the loan. It's just gone. The money was deleted. It's not in the system anymore. And that obviously can affect a bank negatively. So when did that start is the next part of his question, and is it unique to the United States? You, you have something you want to add at this point, though. Well, I wanted to give an example that I think people can relate to right now. The, if you bought a crypto coin, what's a good number? When they were above 100, some of them were above 100,000 at we'll, one point. We'll right? do, uh, yeah, let's, let's say the 69,000 Bitcoin. That's at its close to its I want to use, I want, I want a round figure here. Let's say you bought Bitcoin at 50,000. Okay, 50,000. And it's now at, 30,000. That's actually more like 19,000, but that's okay. Okay, let's let's make it 20,000. Okay. 50,000, 20,000. And you paid $50,000 which went to somebody who sold you the bitcoin. But from your perspective, if you sold it at $20,000, $30,000 just disappeared. It's no longer and previously on your books and effectively when you think about your wealth, liquid wealth that you can liquidate to spend. Uh, you just had $30,000 disappear. Now, admittedly, the total amount of money that you pay, this is where it gets complex. Yeah, as, you paid as, if it wasn't someone, enough already. You paid $50,000 to someone, but let's just talk about your loss of $30,000. Let's just say that was all of your savings or most of your savings. And you had $50,000 in savings and now you have $20,000 in savings and feel very, very uncomfortable because you've only got $20,000 in savings. That means that something you were thinking about buying, like a new couch or something, you may not buy. So that's slowing down growth in the economy there. It's slowing down the velocity of money. Money has, does two things. One, Jake was talking about the fact that it gets, it gets multiplied literally by banks as they make loans. It also is affected by how fast it's moving around. When people stick it in savings and don't do anything with it, when they put it under their bed or whatever, it slows down the growth of money and can actually cause it to go backwards, which is sort of interesting. As people pull money out of the economy, prices then tend to drop to get them to spend the money. As prices drop, the profits of corporations drop. They start laying people off, so those people are no longer able to sell something they have, their time. So there's less money in society, and that's the way the whole thing works. And the other thing, it goes the other way, too. When people start being hired, and companies have record profitability, more money starts to appear in the economy. It's the Federal Reserve's job to control both the velocity and the quantity of money to match what's going on in the economy. And what does that mean? Well, if you're making one chair 
a day and you're selling that chair and you're making pretty good profit on that, you're not raising the price on it, and then you make two chairs a day, you've doubled your income, but it's because you've doubled your productivity. You're still creating something of value that's the same. If you just start raising the price of your chair and you haven't been more productive, you're not making more chairs, the chair is not fancier in any way, it's the same chair, that's inflationary. So the Federal Reserve has to look and see when value is actually being created, what the productivity rate is versus what the money creation rate is. And they're trying to get those two to match. Okay, so and if you look back in a long-term average of productivity increase over the last 40 years or so, it's about 2.5%. It's not that surprising. Per year. Per Per year. year. Per year. Right. Uh, So it's not that surprising that the Federal Reserve's target for inflation is 2.5% that they just need to have enough money being created to bring that. Now, now, when did we start doing this? This actually will make it easier to understand. This started when we first started using paper to represent value. Uh, it, the first checks came out of the Dutch banks, but the Italian banks picked it up really fast. And the Italian banks at that point were dominated by one family, the Medici's. They were originally based in Florence, they went to Venice, and then they basically went everywhere. They are the ones that funded Michelangelo, Donatello, all of the turtles were funded by the Medici. (laughs) (laughs) So there is probably some truth in that, what you just said, because when the Ninja Turtles started up, it probably required a loan. Could be, yeah. From a bank. (laughs) So why were they using paper money? Well, if you knew how much gold you had at the bank and at another branch of the bank, and gold's not always what they were using. A lot of times they were using candlesticks. Sometimes they were using coins of different denominations from different countries that had very strange exchange rates, very odd. So they were really looking at the weight of the metal rather than what kind of coin it was. The preferred coin at that point was the doubloon, the pieces of eight, the Spanish money, because it was very pure, because they had a source of gold in the new world. Okay, so the Italians, the Medicis, start recognizing how much money they have at each bank. They used a very new form of technology, which allowed them to be so successful that they did fund all of the turtles, and that was double-entry bookkeeping. And now it's, that doesn't sound very exciting or sexy today, but it... Fun- it's very arcane. It's, it's very arcane. It, it has something to do with the Illuminati. Right. It funded the Renaissance. So now you have this, these, these, the bank saying, hey, if this is a letter of credit, this is how it first started, and we will check against your balance so that you can receive the value of this letter of credit. That was the check. And it was written out by the bank... People didn't write their own checks. The bank would write it for them because the bank needed to know that the balance was in their bank before handing it out. They Banks hand- still write checks. Yes, they do. They do. They're called cashier's checks. Right, exactly. And they are good as money. So they have not changed that aspect. When they show up, if you lose that letter of credit, too bad, it's gone. Because somebody else could show up with that letter of credit and mm-hmm. spend it. Just because you lost it doesn't mean that it's gone forever it's just gone from you could i add one thing yeah if you open up your wallet and you see a dollar bill in it 
It is a letter of credit. That's right. From the Treasury. Actually, it's not from the Treasury of the United States. It's, it's from, from the, a bank. Yeah, the, the Federal, Federal Reserve. Reserve Bank. It says Federal and it's Reserve even, Note right at the top and of it. it. Will, it will even tell you somewhere on there which of the Federal Reserve Banks issued that note. This is a cashier's check based on the Federal Reserve. When you have letters of credit available, it means that up it's up to the bank then to decide how much actual money they have and how much they're giving out. There have been quite a lot of times in the past during this time period where the Medici's had a lot more loans out than they had metal to back it up with. Banks still do that, and sometimes it comes back and bites them. It's really what's happening in the crypto world right now. All the collapses are based on these big crypto firms loaning each other crypto assets and that firm then loaning it to someone else. And then the collateral that was put on to back up the loan is also loaned out again. So this is a problem. It's a kind of banking issue, but this is how money was created. As soon as a bank could say, I have this on deposit, you can spend this money. And there was not a direct link to the gold or the silver that they had in their bank accounts. This is when money started being created when loans were made. That's, that's, it's not unique to the United States. It's everywhere. And there's a name for that. It's called fractional reserve banking. Right. Federal Reserve tells the banks, you have money on deposit. You can only make, you must have loans no greater than this much based on the money you have on deposit. In essence, for instance, they could say, you must have an 8%. 8% of everything you've loaned must be on deposit at the bank. Whoa, what a small number. Um, but that's the way it really works. And that means that if people come in and say, I want my money out of my bank account right now, they can fulfill about, they can actually pay out if, if the fractional reserve, they can actually pay out about 8% of the unplanned withdrawals. Now, if a certificate deposit is in there, your planned withdrawal, let's say you have a one-year CD, they have a planned withdrawal one year out. And, now, and the Federal the, Reserve the current is number, there. The, the current number right now set by the Federal Reserve for any bank doing business with the Federal Reserve banks is 10%. It's the right. marginal reserve requirement. And it's 10% of the bank's demand and checking deposits. Anything that you could show up and just say, give me that money right now in a normal loan that's called a callable loan they have to have 10% of that available because about 10% of you probably will over the course of a year. Most people don't empty their whole bank out during the year. And if you go beyond the 10%, let's say a bank has, let's make a really small bank and it only has $1,000. Let's say that means they have to have a reserve of $100. Okay, so people show up and they want more than $100. How does the bank provide them with extra money? And the answer is that's what the Federal Reserve is for, and that's why it's called a reserve. They, they contact the Federal Reserve and says, we need more money. We need to borrow the money from you, from the Federal Reserve, to pay our depositors who want to take some money out. Or And the Federal Reserve coughs up the money very quickly. Conversely, a bank may put 10% of their deposits at the Federal Reserve as their reserve to prove that they have 10% in reserve, mm-hmm. they put it right. at the Federal Reserve. That's why it's called that. Which then, and the Federal Reserve then pays them interest on it, which is the that's bank the, rate that they set. That's the number that goes up and down when when they are changing the rates at the Federal Open Market Committee. Does this sound complicated? It does. It does. Actually. It is complicated. And and I can tell you that the Federal Reserve system is based on a system that was developed 
in England, the Bank of England, and a big chunk of that was written by Sir Isaac Newton, who, by the way, if he had been alive and done the same sort of things in a, at a time when the Nobel Prize were being give, given out, he would have gotten it in biology, in economics, and in physics. Maybe in mathematics as well. That's a different prize. It's not Nobel Prize doesn't give one for mathematics, but he probably would have gotten all of those prizes too. Interesting fellow, that that Newton guy. And he still wound up losing a big fortune in the, in the stock market. That's a different story. And one of the big questions is what is money? And there's a lot of answers to that. The answer that I prefer is it is a representation of value with which you can buy things that other people have that you want. Yeah. And which, you, which of course, you will then accept from other people to give them things that you have that they want. For example, if you are employed and you work during the day and you're paid by the hour, what about your at employer? Night? What about at night? Can you work during the night? Too? This is this is the metaphorical day that that includes 24 hours. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Right. Uh, this is the military day. Okay, I suppose it's a civilian day. The uh, and I mean day is needs to be defined too because it's like. 20 it's it's 14 days long the daylight on this moon so if you're on the moon how long is a day yeah a good uh, question on the planet earth we have a 24-hour day okay good more, we have or, established less. more or less and more or less so yes. we're just not only establishing what money is but also what a day is so go ahead. right what a difference a day makes yes uh so what happens is you have a certain amount of hours that belong to you because you're in a society where the constitution and the uh declaration of independence says you own your time uh you can forfeit it but you own it but you then contract with somebody to sell your time to them your time multiplied times your talent and they buy it from you and they use something that you can then turn around and buy other things with like food and shelter and clothing and gasoline to put in your vehicle or if you use gasoline or electricity electricity to put in your vehicle, whatever you put in your vehicle, that's money. It is a representation of value used as an exchange device. It also, this is where it starts to get interesting. very portable. That's the... Right. Well, portable and... Um, Easily preserved. Chickens make pretty good money. Um, you can hold them upside down by their by their leg by their feet, and they will Go be right quite docile. Yeah, they'll be quiet, and, and you can um, use them as money. It just the point is the deflationary issues around chickens are pretty intense because if you hold them long enough upside down like that, then they become worthless. Yeah, and it's so, really hard to carry enough chickens. To, the, to buy a cow. To buy a car. I was going to say a car, but a cow as well. I mean, if you're going to go right. buy a car, it is more difficult to buy, and you have to have some kind of a loading device to fill up a big truck, full, a lot of big trucks full of chickens to mm-hmm. go and buy that car. So you need well, something you more portable. Them. You can exchange them for cows. Yeah. That's, that's because it takes fewer cows to buy a car, but the weight exchange ratio there gets kind of goofy. And you have to clean Which, up, and you don't really right, want them all over right. the lot. They can damage the other cars. So the and idea, you feed them. the early money was somebody, probably more than one, said, "Ooh, this is pretty. I can carry this. Do you like?" And there's this? not much of it, and there's not yeah, much of there's it. Not a lot of it. Do you like it? Yeah, I like that. I'll give you my chicken for that thing. 
uh, cowrie shells, um, flint blanks. Cow, cowrie shells. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Flint blanks, salt. These were all things that were used for money early on. Salt was not necessarily a good form of money because you could eat it. You cooked with it and so on. So it's well, nice. People, I mean, people consume their money now. Well, we have a less consumer-based economy than we did when, when people had to be worth their salt. That's where right. that term comes from, by the way. Uh, old, old veterans are salty not because of sweat. It's a Latin thing for when the troops were paid in salt, literally. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and salt was rare and expensive. And yeah, and yeah, but then then we graduated. Since we're on the subject of money, I love the subject money. And money then graduated from being something rare and uh, solid, known as specie, gold, silver, things of that nature, and copper. Uh, the, the, the origin the origin of the dollar is the the uh, the, the Austrian Thaler, because they had a mine in Austria at Thaler where they could mine pure silver most silver is in ore format so when you get when somebody gets done refining it it can be of various purity um but there's a couple of places in the world where they found veins of solid silver and they just simply had to take the silver melt it down put it in a mold and it became a taller or sterling as the case may be yeah. in 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 scotland athens uh, the athenians had a mind that actually allowed them to beat the Spartans in their war. Even though the Spartans had a much better military, the Athenians had a silver mine that they could use to buy a big fleet and sail away while the Spartans burned down their right. city and then come back to it and eventually outlast them because they had more money. It's really important to understand that we've graduated from that. Mentally and emotionally, I think most of us still think of money as specie, as gold and for instance if the united states only has a certain amount of gold at fort knox and at, in new york and wherever we keep our gold that's all the money we can print because otherwise we the money isn't worth anything well it's really not true anymore the romans pioneered a concept of using non-precious metals in their coins and they printed the emperor's face on them and that is what made them valuable because it was very very illegal like you get hung or chopped in half or something immediately for faking the emperor's money. So counterfeiting was uh, very much frowned upon and a lot of people died for trying to do it. So the money became valuable because simply because the Romans said it was valuable and they would back it. Now, and at the same time, the word money comes from Juno Moneta, uh, which was a, there was a temple on Mons Juno, one of the seven hills in Rome, the temple to, to Juno. Juno Moneta, specifically, where you would go and put your money on deposit. It was sort of like a bank. And it's where they printed it. Yeah. That's where they They minted the money there. It was a religious experience. It was. And it was very carefully controlled how much of it there was out there. And it became a something completely different. And we have another question, but we could go for right. an entire book on this yeah, subject. This, this is, it's absolutely fascinating because... Until, you know, until we shifted from this is a weighty object that everyone can agree that we all like it, whether that's a shell, a piece of, you know, a chunk of salt or a, uh, a piece of metal that's rare. Then it became based on, I promise you that I have that metal on deposit at another bank. It became based on a promise, a word, a bond. That's where we get 
alone being a bond is that you are promising to pay it back or you are promising that you have it on deposit when it's issued so that it can be spent. So anyway, we've covered, I think we we could keep talking on that subject for a long time, but we've got another yeah, question. We- so uh, John's question, uh, Inquisitor John, um, it's a, an article about bear markets and it says intelligent investors don't bother trying to predict the unpredictable. They focus on controlling the controllable. Right. His question is, what does the personal wealth coach see as the controllable? And you made an, uh, when I was reading this back and talking with you or before the program started, you went, oh, I like that question. So I'll let you take it first. What you can control, John and everyone else, is yourself. That's it in a nutshell. People damage themselves in bear markets during the bear markets by selling out at low prices. People have preceded that damage in many cases, though, during the bull market by not having enough reserve because they don't recognize that a bear market is going to come. It's really important when you invest to recognize that thing that you see in mutual fund advertisements and so on that says price share prices may be higher or lower when purchased than when redeemed, which doesn't mean a lot to most people. but the reality is, if we look back at the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index, in 2000 through 2002, it dropped 50%. If we look at 1987, in a very short period of time, it dropped over 30%. If we look at 2007 through the mid-2009, it dropped about 50%. These things happen. Can you control them? No, they're going to happen. So what you do is control what can be controlled, which is say, I can control the fact that where I get my money during a bear market. You can diversify across the marketplace beforehand. That's something you don't have a lot of control of it during the bear market unless you did it before. And not only diversify, you can say, if I'm drawing from my 401k portfolio or IRA or whatever for retirement, or I'm going to in the next few years, I have enough reserves to last through an average or even above average bear market. We look at history and say, how long do bear markets typically last historically? And you say, well, yeah, but you can't predict the future. No, you can't predict the future. But we can say, for example, winter is coming and without having an entire TV series on it. Right. And you can say summer is coming. Uh, I live in Salado. I can say a flood is coming. Summer is already here. Just letting you know that. Yeah, and, and, and summer is here. I can I can forecast in the winter time that summer is coming. And by the way, it's a lot easier to get the air conditioning people to come and examine your air conditioning system in the winter time than it is in the summertime. I've noticed this. Yeah, uh, I've got a stack of wood uh, under in my carport because winter's coming. Uh, but don't so, you know it's the middle of summer? You don't need that wood. Yeah, that's exactly it. The point is, those things you can control, control well. Can you control when a bear market's going to hit? No. Can you control when it's over? No. Do you know when it's going to be over? No. What you can say is, historically, here's what we've seen. And based on that, I can control a lot about my finances. Right. So I think that kind of bridges over into what that next question is going to be next hour. It's about social security and whether or not Congress is going to lower current recipients payments in 2035 or limit what people receive that haven't started it yet. And we'll, we'll talk about that next hour. I'd like to throw one comment about that for next hour. Quick. 
Congress doesn't have to do anything to lower right. recipients' income. Right. It'll automatically go down 80% if Congress does nothing. So we'll talk right. about that right. more. Not, not 80%, 20%. Yeah, we'll talk about that more next hour because there's a lot of stuff that may happen over the next 13 years. Um, but in the meantime, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have uh, emails, phone numbers available. We'll get you to the emails in a minute. They're the same ones that we just gave you before. Uh, local voicemail during the weekends, real live people during the week is? 254-947-1111. Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com if you're lazier like me. Uh, there are newsletters to read there. You can also sign up to receive them directly to your email. Uh, there are recordings of the radio program going back lots of years. You can go to anywhere podcasts are provided and find us there as well. Uh, let's see, email to us or contact form on the webpage is jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.